Today we're going to be, or this morning, we're going to be speaking about the Adamic covenant. So the covenant made with Adam. Now, if you've ever studied covenants before or did your own research, you may or may not have come across this term. Uh, There's actually a bit of a debate as to whether this covenant even exists. And the reason for that is because when you read, say, God's covenant with Abraham, like we looked at last night, or God's covenant with Noah, what you usually see is God saying, I'm going to make a covenant with you. We're going to establish a covenant. I'm going to make a promise, something of that sort. However, when you look in Genesis 1 through 3, where uh, our passage takes place, you don't see any word covenant happening in that little section. So some people say there's no covenant here whatsoever. However, let me read this to you. This is Isaiah 66, verse 1. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Now, if I came to you and I said, this is not about kingship because there is no term king, would that make sense? No, because you have the imagery of kingship there, of throne and footstool and so on. And so what I'm going to propose is that in Genesis 1 through 3, you have the imagery and the makeup of a covenant being made, even though the explicit term is not there. So we said last night how a covenant is essentially a relationship between two parties. You have A, the relationship, B, the stipulation, so some of the requirements in that relationship, and then C, the consequences. If you break that relationship, there will be consequences. And that's what we see in the first three chapters. The relationship is placing Adam and the woman in the Garden of Eden. The stipulations are you shall not eat of the tree, And then finally, you have the consequences, the curses, which you and I are still living with today. So this morning, we're going to see the theme of covenant in Genesis 3. And we're also going to look at the covenant and see its broader implications for the way of life today. Now, I grew up in a Messianic Jewish household. Uh, Both my parents are Jewish believers. However, I only came to faith around the age of 15. Now, when I was about 17, I decided I wanted to go to one year of Bible college, just one year in order to kind of get some good foundation, good grounding. Uh, Little did I know that 13 years later, I would still be in school for the exact same subject. Uh, But nevertheless, I I went to New Brunswick Bible Institute. If anyone is, that's like going from New York to Maine, right? It's it's not that far. Uh, It's about seven hours for me. And I went there and everything was going well up to about November. And then I remember sitting in class, it was November, early November, and then a thought popped into my head. This, this memory of something that I did, this sin against the Lord that I did, and I started feeling really guilty. And that point right there marked the start of about a four-month period wrestling with guilt. Over the next four months, I would speak to my parents about my guilt. I would plead with God, please let me feel forgiven, let me be forgiven. I would go to sleep at night pleading with God that I could wake up and not have any recollection of my sin because I constantly felt guilty. I would even meet with counselors in order to, uh, in order to, maybe they had a theological trick of some sort that I could, you know, apply and start feeling better about myself. And these thoughts really plagued me. You know, are you forgiven or is there something else I must do because I didn't feel forgiven? Now, unfortunately, I'm not alone in this experience. I just recently read an article about the correlation with believers and followers of the Messiah and guilt, how that's often a big theme in our lives. Now, don't get me wrong, guilt could be beneficial, right? Kind of like touching a hot fire. It could send you the other way and come back to the Lord and say, listen, I'm sorry, and you move forward. It could be beneficial, but it could also be detrimental. 
And it could be paralyzing to your spiritual life because you could get stuck in a rut. And so guilt is something that may affect many of us this morning. And that's one of the things that I want to explore this morning, looking specifically at Adam and Eve. You know, when you think of role models, you might think of Yael or Moses or Joseph. People don't really look at Adam and Eve, but I posit that they got it right in terms of what to do after they sinned. So today we're going to look at Genesis 1 through 3. First, the covenant itself, what it is, how it influences us, and will it ever end? And then second, looking closely at Adam and Eve. How did they deal with their guilt and shame? And then how could that be instructive for us moving forward in our spiritual lives? So if you would, you could turn with me to Genesis 3. Um, We're going to be kind of looking at Genesis 1 through 3 going on. So um, as was said, it's a good thing you guys don't have scrolls. You could flip through, so hopefully you'll be able to, uh, to follow along. Now, the message this morning is really divided into three parts. The first is from chaos to order. And here we see that, you know, when the, when the Bible opens up, when the narrative opens up in the beginning, God created, it's kind of like a movie opening up, and what you see is chaos around the world. What you see is kind of disorder, and what God does is he makes complete order. He actually makes a type of utopia for mankind. So God is the one who brings chaos into order. Then we're going to look at from order back to chaos, Genesis 3. This is the, what, what is often called the fall of, of mankind, the institution of sin in the world. And what we're going to see here is that sin impacts every single area of life. That there is no such thing. You, you know when Paul, he's speaking in, uh, to the church in Corinth, and he says that a little bit of leaven leavens a whole lump of dough. And in the same way, a little bit of sin. There's no such thing as a compartmentalized sin as, okay, this is my guilty pleasure and I'm just going to leave it here. It's going to spread it and affect everything else. And we see that in this Genesis account. So we go from order back to chaos. And then finally, from chaos back to order. Here we're going to see the hope of the Messiah and how you and I can have harmony with God today through the promise of Yeshua. And so the main point going forward is that all of our transgressions, our guilt, must be viewed through the lens of Messiah and his work, not our own. Okay, so let's jump in. Looking at Genesis 1, now we're going to open up with the creation account. Um, I'm going to be touching on a couple of different points going forward. I'm not going to be going verse by verse, so you can kind of think of it like if you take a rock and you skip it across water. That's essentially what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be touching on a couple of verses here and there, uh, but most of them will be up on the PowerPoint. So first, we have the opening of the scriptures. We have the famous passage, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. Now, there are many ways to interpret in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and if you're aware of any recent debates about the age of the earth and things like that, you're well aware of this. You could interpret it, you know, uh, in a temporal fashion, when God was creating the heavens and the earth. Some people understand it more as like a chapter title. God is a creator of all things. Now, let me just kind of tell you what happened. I'm not really going to be getting into that here. What I want to focus on is really the status of the earth, the description of the earth when the book opens up. It says that it was formless and void and that there was water all over it. The term formless is used a couple of other times in scripture, and it usually means a wasteland, something empty. It's something destroyed. 
either by, by warfare or something that, that where nothing can grow. It's formless. These two words are actually used together in Jeremiah. If you remember Jeremiah, he's a prophet who was prophesying when the Babylonians came and they took out Judah from, uh, from their location and they destroyed the land. And so Jeremiah draws a comparison with the status of Judah at that point and in the beginning, that it was formless and void, that there was nothing that could grow. There was nothing, there was no place to live. It was a status of chaos. And other people have drawn a, uh, a comparison here. You see that water is all over the earth. And where else do you guys see water all over the earth? The flood, right? That happens just a couple of chapters later. Not necessarily because it was a judgment, but it just shows that there was chaos happening all over. And yet this is when God steps in. This is where God restores order to everything. And so really his creation here, the, the creation account is a matter of restoring order. And so for the first three days, God separates everything, right? He separates light from darkness. He separates the sky from the earth. He separates the water from the land. And then the three days after that, he fills everything. You know, the sun, moon, and stars, he fills the, the, the vegetation. And then finally he fills the people. Now, many critics have, uh, have looked at uh, this passage, or, or rather the, the creation account, and they said, oh, you know, these Israelites, they just copied. They just copied from other creation accounts. If you read about uh, communities that lived alongside Israel, they too have creation accounts, and they sound fairly similar, right? Uh, and it's true, there is some similarity between them, because at the end of the day, they're both creation accounts. So obviously, there's going to be somewhat of a similarity. But there's one very important substantial difference is that in the Bible, there are no other gods. You see, when you read in the, ancient Near Eastern, in the ancient Near Eastern text, there's usually a battle going on, right? With the god of the, of the water and the god of the sky or something of that sort, and they're fighting over dominion, and that's how kind of the world forms. When you look at the creation account here, there's no battle. God takes the water. You know, they, they often revered the water at that time. It was chaos. It was scary. There were monsters in it. He moves it around. There's, there's no challenge. With the, the sun and the stars that the Egyptians revered, there's no challenge. So this is really not only a creation account, it's kind of like a theological treatise of monotheism, that we worship the one most powerful God. And so here it sets up God as the one who establishes order. And then finally we come to uh, what's depicted here as the kind of apex of the creation account. That is the creation of mankind, the creation of humanity. This is a, a famous passage that has um, many, many trees have died so that people could share their thoughts on this passage and their interpretations because there are just so many as to what these various different terms mean. Let us make man. What does our image mean? What does our likeness mean? So we'll just touch on this very, very quickly here. But essentially, this is where God is creating mankind. And first, you have the let us. Let us make man, which you see later on at the Tower of Babel. And what does let us imply and what does it mean? Uh, I presume most of us are familiar with the various options. One is the royal term, just as a queen would say, you know, let us do something. She would speak of herself in the plural. So here, God is it's what you call a plural of majesty. And uh, actually, in my thesis at Dallas Theological Seminary, I argued different passage, but I argued that there was a, uh, a plural of majesty uh, that was being used as a plural referring to God. 
Uh, and then after I submitted it, I came across an article that said that the entire genre is a myth. There's no plural of majesty, so I don't know. It's up to you uh, if that's the one you want to take. So let us, one is the royal view. A second view is that he's speaking to the heavenly courts. And you see this in Job and you see it in Micaiah's vision in 2 Kings. He speaks to the heavenly courts. You know, who's going to go forward uh, for us? You see it with Isaiah as well. And so the question is, is he speaking to the heavenly courts here? Uh, I remember actually on my way back from uh, Bible college on a, on a bus, I sat next to an Orthodox Jewish woman and we were having this discussion and that was the first time I ever heard this argument that he's speaking about the heavenly courts. A third view, the one that I adopt, is that it's talking about or it's revealing a plurality in the person of God. And the reason I hold that view is because when it goes on and it speaks about the creation of mankind, it says God created man in his own image In the image he created him, male and female, he created them. So really what you have is a male and female who become one flesh at the end of chapter 2, and that's really a beautiful picture of who God is, a plurality and unity together. So that's where I stand on let us make man in our image. But then the question is, what is the image of God? Is it the physical features of God, as some have proposed? Is it the, the mental capacity and the physical capacity, or the, the, uh, the mental and the spiritual capacity in order to relate to God that, say, animals don't necessarily have? Uh, if you ever just open up a, a commentary, you're going to see a plethora of options, and you can just kind of flip a coin if you're not really sure. Or you could take my view. My view is looking at the context. I think the context itself is always the key. It's the thing that's going to really help you along in understanding the passage. So what does it say right after the context, uh, after he says it? Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea. Right? Let them rule over creation. So that means the notion that we're made in the image of God means we have dominion over the earth. Just as God, there's no other gods. He is the one ruler over the entire universe. He makes mankind in his image to rule over the earth. That's what it is to be made in God's image. And we see them exercising that, uh, that, that liberty or, or that position. Uh, for example, when all the animals came to Adam, what did he do to them? He named them, which is often understood as a form of having dominion over them. And you actually see this in the, in the ancient, in, um, in the societies around Israel. For example, in one Babylonian text, it says, you, O king of the world, are an image of the other god of Marduk, right? So it's the kingship. It's the notion of having dominion. So right from the get-go, mankind has this wonderful relationship with the animal kingdom. God made him in his image, and he's ruling over the animal kingdom, and that's what we could call, say, the first pillar of creation. So then, after God creates uh, mankind, we have the seventh day. We have Shabbat, and here it says that God rests. Usually, uh, at our household, I have three young boys, uh, five, three, and Two, yeah, uh, and um, usually at Shabbat, you know, I'll ask some questions, you know, like, and how, how many commandments did God give Moses, you know, or how many plagues or something like that, and, you know, one time, it's, you know, why did God rest on Shabbat, and, well, because he's tired, right, probably not, it's probably not that he rested because he was so fatigued from the six days of, you know, dividing and then filling, instead, what he's doing here is he's giving us a model that we should rest as well, However, it's not just physical rest. When you look at this notion of rest throughout Scripture, there's usually this spiritual component embedded in there. And that's really what Hebrews 4, when you get there, and it speaks about, you know, Joshua led them into the land, but they couldn't achieve real rest. 
And so then Yeshua, which is the exact same name in Greek, uh, Yeshua brought them in and now they could achieve real rest. Rest had a spiritual component embedded in it. And you see this in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was our apex. That was where we were supposed to be because that's where we would commune with God eternally. It says, then the Lord God took man and he put him. And the verb for put him is actually noach. It's rest. He caused him to rest. It's a a hephiel. He caused him to rest in the Garden of Eden to cultivate and to keep it. Now, if you've ever opened up a commentary uh, on this passage right here, you're probably going to come across uh, some, some statement about a grammatical issue going on here. Most of us know, obviously you all know what Hebrew looks like. You know about the pointings, okay? The Masoretic pointings. We also know that those pointings were included in about the 9th, 10th century CE, right? Or AD. So they're included much later, and there's usually some debate about how best to point the text. Well, with the pointing that we have here, you actually have a grammatical issue with cultivate it and keep it. I'm going to get a little technical. If I start sounding like Charlie Brown's parents, you know, like, don't worry, like that's how I feel most of the time in class, but I think that we're all going to get this really easily. Cultivate it and keep it refers back to the Garden of Eden. The issue is the it, cultivate it and keep it, is a feminine. It's in a feminine form, whereas garden is a masculine And so then there's a question of how do you have this grammatical issue? Because in Hebrew, they're supposed to be the same. If it's looking back at the the garden, it's supposed to be of the same gender. So what some propose is that you take out what makes it feminine and instead you treat them as infinitives and it changes the meaning of it. Where now the Lord took the man and he caused him to rest in the Garden of Eden to worship and obey. Because the times that we see these two words used together, you often have the implication of worshiping God and obeying, usually in a priestly fashion, in a priestly context. So here this shows that our relationship with God was supreme. It was superb. We were put in the garden. That was kind of our covenant relationship, and we were able to worship him, uh, worship and obey him. So God wasn't merely looking for a gardener or a location. Instead, it was a perpetual fellowship. Now, of course, you have a condition. So this is the first part of the covenant. This is the established relationship, but there is a condition. God placed in the Garden of Eden the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he said, you shall not eat of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, once again, people kind of pick up on this narrative and they say, oh, you know, like right from the get-go, God didn't even want his people to understand the difference between right and wrong. He just wanted them to be robots just to obey. That's not what it means. The notion of of the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil is largely understood as exercising moral autonomy, meaning that you usurp the authority of God. It's no longer important. So God placed us in the Garden of Eden to worship him, but you need to obey as well. Just like we looked at with Abraham and his submission, so we need to live in obedience. So that's it. That's a pretty easy uh, thing to follow. And the relationship between man and God looks great. That's like the first pillar. The second pillar, the relationship between man and the animal kingdom is great. So things are looking good, but there's one very important missing part. Who are we missing? The, The woman. Yes, the first time we see Lotov in this creation account is that it is not good for man to be alone. And so therefore we have the creation of the woman. 
And here he says that uh, she's going to be made a helper for him. This is not a derogatory term. Uh, if God is, is actually called a helper for Israel, if anything, it means that mankind needs help. And so thus they have the woman to compliment them. Um, the, the idea of the rib coming out of the middle, that's often been understood as equality. So there is uh, nothing putting her down. But when Adam sees the woman, you know, he says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He is super excited. Like, you know, in cartoons, like when a wolf or something would like see, I don't know, a lamb. It's, it sounds terrible. It's a terrible, whatever. But like, you know, the eyes would go out, you know, like really excited. And so his relationship with the woman was superb. And we see it described here at the end of Genesis, uh, Genesis 2, 24 through 25. It says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall join, shall be joined to his wife. And the word here is cleave, to join. It doesn't necessarily have sexual implications. It's more about a priority or a strong commitment between the two. That they're going to be joined together. The man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. And the term naked here, uh, it's used later on in Genesis when they're spying out the land. They wanted to see the nakedness of the land. They wanted to see the transparency of the land. They want to see the weakness of it. So here, they were completely committed to each other. They were completely transparent. There, were, there was nothing hiding from each other. So that's the end of Genesis 1 and 2. So you have these three pillars, right? God with, uh, or mankind with God is superb in the garden. Mankind with the animals is great. And mankind with the woman is great. Those are the three pillars that you have. And then you come to chapter 3. And what you're going to see is because of one decision, each one of those pillars is going to be completely turned around and broken. And that's how we see that chaos infiltrates everything. So we have first from chaos to order, things are looking good. And then now from order to chaos, we end in Genesis 2 with man and the woman. And then you come to Genesis 3.1. And does anyone know who we're introduced to right away? The serpent. Uh, if you guys, do you guys, are people here relatively knowledgeable on Hebrew? Hebrew syntax. If I say an offline clause, does that ring a bell? No, no. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so in Hebrew, very quickly, in Hebrew, usually the structure of the sentence is verb, subject, object, right? Like he went, Moses, to the store. Moses went to the store, right? He went to the aisle. He took this, that. Moses sat there. When you start with a noun, it's like the author's telling you, slow down and pay attention. And that's what you have in Genesis 3.1. You have verbs going, verbs going, then Genesis 3.1. But the serpent was the most cunning in all the garden. Now, the serpent, usually it has a reputation in the ancient Near East. Uh, some view them as, as a very uh, mythical creature. Some view them as extremely dangerous, as instituting chaos. And so here we're introduced to the serpent. And what you're going to see with the serpent is I remember our three pillars, man and God, man, the woman, man, and the animal. Well, now this one's going to be turned upside down. Instead of man having dominion over the animal, the animal's going to have dominion over the man through deception. So we have a play on words here. In Genesis 2.25, it says, And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Then right after that, Genesis 3.1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field, which the Lord God had made. Now in Hebrew, naked is arumim, and crafty is arum. So what you're going to see is the arum of the serpent is going to take away the arumim of the people. So right off the bat, things are not looking good. Now, 
the actual term arum, we're told to be like this in Proverbs 12. So it's not necessarily a bad attribute, but here it's obviously used for negative uh, goals. So in Genesis 1 through 5, we have uh, the deception of, uh, I'm sorry, Genesis 3, 1 through 5, we have the deception of Eve by the serpent. And, you know, like, I mean, how could that happen, right? You're in the garden, things are looking great. Why just focus on that tree? And a lot of literature has been um, spent on this, kind of seeing how the deception actually took place. I think the main point here, and it happens today all the time, the main point is that when you portray God as a suppressor, rather than a protector, that's when people step away. God placed the tree and he told them the laws to protect them, but the serpent said that he's suppressing them. And you see that with his language. You see, God gave the command that you shall not eat of the tree in the garden. And yet the serpent goes to the woman and what does he say? Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden. So automatically now you're placing God as a suppressor, no longer as a protector. Now, of course, any good lie, as anyone, I've only been told, uh, any good lie that will work, you have to mix some truth in it. And that's what you have here. God did say you cannot eat of the tree, not any tree. And we see in Eve's response that she buys into this. She also includes her own form of exaggeration. She says, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God had said, you shall not eat from it, so she got that part right, or you shall not touch it, or you will die. Now, there's actually a lot of rabbinic literature on this. They say that Adam received the command and that he had to create his own kind of oral law, his own Mishnah for Eve, and so that's why he said, don't even touch it. But that was never part of God's command. And so what you see right here is that God is being depicted more as a suppressor than a protector, and then that's why the serpent comes out and he says that God is a liar, that you'll be fine, that you'll be able to eat it, and thus the woman takes it and she eats it. And you see here the key parts in Genesis 3:6 of what led to the fall. It says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she ate from it and also gave to her husband. And we know from 1 John 2, 6, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, good for food, the lust of the eyes, delight to the eyes, and a boastful pride of life, desirable to make one wise, is not from the Father, but is from the world. So here we see the first pillar, man and the animals turned upside down, and that's going to affect everything else. The next one is the man and the woman. What happened to them? It says here that the eyes of both of them were opened, and that they knew that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and they made for themselves loin coverings, right? The, the, the transparency, the lack of shame, all that was out the window now. The, the enjoyment that they had before, now they're sewing fig leaves in order to cover themselves. Now they had shame between them. It was a new type of separation. Not only that, but when God asked, the, asked Adam, what did you do? Why did you do this? What did he say? <laughs> it wasn't me, it was the woman. Yeah, I'm sure she appreciated that. Bone of my bone kind of went out the window there too. Threw her under the, uh, the bus. So you have the first one, man and the animal kingdom. The second one, man and the woman was now disrupted. And then the third, man and God's fellowship was disrupted. Before they were worshiping and obeying in the Garden of Eden. Now, when they heard the, the footsteps of God, what did they do? They hid. You know, when you look at Isaiah, it's usually God who's hiding. Usually he hides 
from, from Israel. He hides his face from them when they're in great sin because it represents a type of separation between them. Here, for the first time, mankind is hiding from God. There's a broken fellowship. And then God says, uh, it says that uh, the Lord called out to them and he said to them, where are you? Now, did God know where they were? I would say so. People say that here we do not have uh, an omniscient God. However, um, you know, my father would always tell a story about uh, me growing up and how he walked into the kitchen when I was a young boy and he looked at me and said, where's all the chocolate? I said, I don't know. And I had chocolate all over my face. <laughs> of course, my dad was able to put, you know, one and one together to see that I ate it. But instead, what he did, he asked me in order to bring out the truth. And so here, God is calling out, where are you? And you could imagine what that would have been like for Adam and for, and for the woman having this broken fellowship. We actually see God use this type of language elsewhere, uh, where he says in Genesis 4 uh, to Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me. He's not asking because he doesn't know. Instead, he's asking to bring out the truth. So what this shows us is that sin affects every area of life. There's no such thing as a compartmentalized sin. You have the three pillars and all of them were destroyed from it. And that's an important thing for us to remember as well. Uh, you know, at, at home, I, I play a lot of squash, which is a, a sport. It's kind of like a, it's a racket sport. It's like racquetball. And uh, as I'm getting older, I get a lot of pain, like in my back, and I have to go to physio. And always, you know, I'm just saying, listen, the pain's in my middle back, just can you work it out? And they would always remind us, you know, nope, the back is attached to the shoulders, which is impacted by the posture, which is also affected by, impacted by the hamstrings and your arms and this and that. Everything's connected together. So if you neglect one part, everything else will be affected. So there's no such thing as, well, I'm not going to really care about my back, I'm just going to work everything else. No, in the same way, we don't just leave one sin and this is my guilty pleasure, it's going to affect everything else. Again, Paul said this when he said, a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Uh, does anyone here play guitar? No? Okay. Well, in, on guitar you have six strings, okay? And they all have to be in tune with each other. And if I take one string and I just turn it, right? I could say, look, I have five other ones that are really good. I don't really need the sixth one. When I play that chord, it's going to sound terrible, okay? And so you have a choice. Either the other five are going to have to conform to that one, or you're going to have to fix that one, right? We cannot just leave our sin there. It's going to either spread or you eradicate it. And so this is what we see. A little bit of sin leavens the whole, uh, whole lump. And so now we come to the consequences, the Adamic covenant. Um, again, you had the relationship, you had the stipulations, don't eat the tree, now you have the consequences. So man, uh, God asked man, what did you do? He blamed the woman. Who did the woman blame? The serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. Thank you. I have said that joke and people don't get it. So thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay, all right, I feel very accomplished now, so... So he actually, so God enacts his judgment in that order. He asks man to the woman to the serpent. So he focuses on the serpent now. And he says to the serpent, first off, he, he addresses his physical stature. And he says, you know, you are the most cunning. Now you're going to be the most cursed. So he switches his status uh, in the animal kingdom. You're going to be more cursed than everybody else. Cursed are you, and on your belly you will go. Now, does that necessarily mean that he had legs before? 
No, because he didn't have a leg to stand on, right? No, uh, I don't know. Some people say yes, some people say no. It doesn't, I don't think it really matters. Uh, God, later on with Abraham, he takes circumcision, which was well-practiced in that region and gives it a new meaning. Uh, he could have very well given the crawling of the serpent a new meaning at this point, or he could have taken away the legs. Either way, it represents the fact that he is the most cursed of all the, of all the animals. So he focuses on the serpent as a being, and then he goes to the person behind the serpent. Now, this, this part gets a little controversial. I went to, in my seminary, um, some people think this is a, the first messianic prophecy. In my seminary, they said, no, this is just about animosity between mankind and serpents, okay? I think that this is actually addressing the being behind the serpent, who we know from Revelation is the, the uh, enemy, is uh, Satan. And the reason for that is it uses the term enmity. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now the term enmity is only used about four or five times in the Hebrew Bible, and it's always used for moral agents, meaning the Philistines and the Israelites. It's always used for people who are morally accountable, not the animal kingdom. So he's saying, I'm gonna put enmity between you and the woman. So he's addressing someone who's morally culpable. Also keep in mind that the serpent is talking. So we only have one other time where you have an animal talking, and that's with um, the donkey, right? And that was a supernatural uh, interaction as well. So uh, I, I think you could make a pretty good case that, that there is a being behind the, the serpent here. But what's most important when he addresses Satan in the background or behind the serpent, he essentially gives him his death sentence. He says, I'm going to put hatred, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed, what you produce, and her seed. Now here's the key part. He will bruise you uh, or crush you on the head and you will bruise him on the heel. He refers back to her seed. There's going to be an individual who is going to come from the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent, who's going to crush the head of Satan. So here what God does is he curses the serpent and he gives Satan his death sentence, that someone is going to come who's going to destroy him. And here we have the start of a messianic hope. If you ever interact with, um, say, anti-missionaries or people who uh, don't believe that Yeshua is the Messiah, they'll often say her seed here refers to many descendants, okay? The thing is, that's true. Seed could refer to many or could refer to one. The fact that you have he, a singular pronoun right after, always refers to an individual. So it's looking forward to a specific someone who's going to come. So here we have the curse of the serpent. Next, we have the curse of the woman that first she is going to have pain in childbirth. Remember, they're under the Adamic covenant, and one thing you have to do is be fruitful and multiply. So here you're going to have pain when you give birth. And then the second thing is that you will have a desire for your husband, but he will rule over you. Now, the term desire is not used many times in Scripture. We see it again in the next chapter where God says to Cain, sin has a desire to rule over you. Uh, so obviously it has sinister intentions. As to the exact meaning of this, there's a lot of debate. What we could see here is that there's going to be animosity. The enjoyment you had before, that was broken. There's going to be animosity between man and woman. So here we have birth and the desire for the woman. And then finally for the man, it says that cursed is the ground, right? Before you had fellowship in the Garden of Eden and it was great. Now the ground is cursed and you're going to work by the sweat of your brow and to dust you shall return. You're going to physically die. So that's the Adamic covenant. 
It's the established relationship between man and God, placing him in the garden. There was a stipulation, don't eat of the tree. And then finally, the consequences. Now, we still live with these consequences today, right? Paul speaks about this in Romans 8, where he says that all of creation groans with pains and suffering, and we're looking forward to redemption. And when you look at this narrative, you know, people could be angry at God. Why did God do this? If he knew everything, if he knew the future, why did he allow this to happen? However, from another standpoint, you could look at this narrative and say, wow, God is gracious. You see, because he had every reason to destroy mankind, but what did he do? He gave us the hope of the Messiah. And then after that, you remember Adam and Eve, they're putting on figs, they're trying to, to cover themselves up, and what does the Lord do? It says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. He made the first sacrifice in order to clothe them and to cover them up. And then finally, he sent them out of the garden so they wouldn't live forever in that state. And so you really do see the graciousness of God here. Now, how long must we live in a state like this? It's actually interesting. If you read in Isaiah 64, 65, you have the new heavens and the new earth. And here it gives a description of what it's going to be like. And you see the reversal of almost all of these curses. It says that people will not toil in vain. They will not give, uh, it will not be painful to give birth. The earth will be blessed. Do you know what is not reversed? It's the slithering of the serpent. That's going to be a perpetual sign of the rebellion that will not be reversed. So here that summarizes the from chaos to order and then from order back to chaos. But now I want to discuss finally the response of Adam and the woman from chaos back to order. Again, you don't usually look at them as role models, but here I think they nailed it on the head in terms of what to do. First, let's look at Adam's response. Um, it's, it's important to, to keep in mind, you know, when I was uh, about four years ago, I was trying to improve my French, and so I was reading a, um, kind of like a comic book in French, and it was the Genesis account, because that's what I do for fun. And uh, in there, you see this picture, and it's before the fall, and Adam, he's calling out, and he says, hey, Eve, come over here and come check out this tree, or the stalking serpent, okay? That would never have happened, because she wasn't given a name yet. Throughout the entire first section, she's called the woman, and that's very important. So here you have the curse in Genesis 3, uh, 18 and 19. God tells Adam, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. You're going to physically die. And Adam is probably wondering, you know, with all the guilt and the shame that he's feeling, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? For the, you know, the other 800 years that I'm going to live, what am I going to be doing now? But notice what he does. It says right in the next verse, now the man called his wife's name Eve. Adam went and he called his wife's name Eve, the, which means the mother of all the living. Okay, he was just promised physical death, and yet he called his wife Eve. You see, like if I were there and he consulted me, I would say maybe we should call her, uh, we really messed up, or don't listen to serpents, right? Like something commemorative about what just happened. But you see, Adam's focus wasn't on what just happened. He wasn't looking back. Instead, what he was doing, he was looking forward to the promise that God gave about the seed of a woman. He was looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And that's why, despite the fact of the promise of death, he names the woman Eve, the mother of all the living, because he trusted in the promise that would come. And you see something very similar with Eve in Genesis 4.1. This is uh, very interesting. It's gotten a lot of attention. Genesis 4.1, this is the birth of the first uh, child here. 
And, what, and Eve says, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord, after she gave birth to Cain. Now, in your Hebrew, what you're going to notice is that the term, with the help of, is not in there. Literally, it's, I have given birth, um, colon, to the Lord. And there's been a lot of discussion on this. Did she really think she was giving birth to Adonai? Did she really think she was giving birth to the Messiah? And so they spoke about this in, in Bereshit Rabbah, which is about a fourth century text. It's a commentary on Genesis. And here, uh, Rabbi Ishmael, he asked Rabbi Akiva about the importance of this, uh, this, this phrase right over here. And Rabbi Akiva says, if it said, I had gotten a man, the Lord, it would have been difficult to interpret. Hence, with the help of is required. Right? I love that explanation. Uh, it just doesn't really fit within the mold. But see, people look at this and say, Eve also had an anticipation that there would be a supernatural birth. Now, whether you believe in that or not, either way, she's attributing the fact that she's having children to the Lord. She also understands that there's going to be a seed of the woman who's going to come. They understood the promises of God. So when I think back to my own experience in Bible college, four months in, in November, I realize now, when I look back, I was trying to sow my own fig leaves on myself. I was trying to cover up myself the way that I thought I should be. See, because I felt guilty, I thought I was. And I was basing my own status on how I felt rather than God's word. And what we see with the example of Adam and Eve is they did not do that. They based themselves on God's word alone. I usurped the authority of God, and I declared myself unrighteous. They didn't, and that's why they serve as a model. So eventually, a couple of months later, I went for a, uh, a car ride um, with a counselor to Tim Hortons, actually. So yeah, I remember he, gave, he had a gift card, and I, I got a donut, um, and I explained to him everything, and he brought up Acts 10, and this is the vision of, of Peter. You see, when God was telling Peter to go to, to the nations, to go to the Gentiles, he gave him a vision, right? And you have the unclean animals who are coming down. And what does Peter say? No way. I'm a good Jewish boy. I'm not going to eat any of that food, right? And the food obviously represented the Gentile nations. And what does God say? Don't call unclean what I've called clean. And in the same way, when 1 John says that if you confess your sins, that God will forgive you, don't call guilty what God has deemed righteous. And that's when I realized that these feelings of guilt was me usurping God's authority, and instead, I had to rely on his word rather than my own. And so just like Adam and Eve, they didn't look back, they looked forward to the promise. You know, Paul, he has the same idea in Philippians 3. He says, forgetting the things that are behind. You know, I haven't fully grasped it yet, I'm going to forget what came behind, and I'm pushing forward to what's coming ahead to be with the Lord. And so if we struggle with guilt, what are some takeaways uh, from this? First, I think it's very important to distinguish between the type of guilt. There is, like we said, good guilt, beneficial guilt, and detrimental guilt. In 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10, Paul writes, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. You know, Yeshua said, how are you going to know my followers? How are you going to know the ones who are really after me? By the fruit that they produce. Always see what they produce. So if you're dealing with guilt and it produces fruit of repentance and going to the Lord and moving forward, then that's righteous guilt. 
If we're dealing with guilt where we're now in a rut and we're just circling our tires or our tires are spinning and we cannot get out of here, God is not a God of confusion. What we see here is God is not a God of chaos. He's a God of order. So that's not from the Lord. There's something else happening. So you identify the type of guilt. And then second, we have to trust in God's word over our emotions. And that's, that's where the, the will comes in and you have to put the emotions to the side. So I challenge you, you know, if, if this is something that you struggle with, journal, journal your, your sin or journal your repentance and then write right next to it, 1 John 1, 9. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we trust in that, that we are declared clean. Now, of course, if you need to apologize to someone or something like that, that's obviously part of it. Um, but here, we're looking at the sin against the Lord, and he is faithful to forgive us. So my prayer for us this morning is that we walk in the liberty of the Messiah that he has given us, and that we trust in the word, and keep in mind that all things are made new in the Messiah, including us. Amen. Let me just uh, kind of close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you, Lord, for the revelation that we have with Adam and Eve and the story and your grace, Lord, in the midst of that judgment, Father. And I just, I, I thank you, God, that we don't have to live in guilt, that we don't have to live um, with sin kind of bearing over us, Lord, but you have taken that punishment, Father. And I pray that if there's anyone here who struggles, Lord, with the past or struggles with guilt, and Lord, it is not of you, Father, that you would give them the liberty of knowing your word, of standing on it, Lord, so that we could be filled with your spirit, we could be proactive, and we could look forward, Lord, to growing your kingdom. I pray all this in Yeshua's name. Amen.